Have you ever listened to the news and thought, what is going on? Or heard crazy terms like pork and log rolling and wondered how is this related to policy? Or know about separations of power, but are not really sure how that works? I'm here to help. Welcome to Who Wants Some Pork? I'm your host, Kate Nee, and I'm here to help you understand the basics of the United States government so you can learn how our government operates and be able to watch the news and actually understand what's going on. We cover topics like the three branches of government, terms used in the legislative process, and historical context of headlines you see now. This week, we're going to be covering the legislative branch, or what is otherwise known as Congress. This is a daunting and purposefully complex branch, and I'm going to be giving you an overview of its structure and inner workings. I'm also going to be giving you some constitutional history, but please bear with me because hopefully it won't be as boring as it sounds. Also, make sure to take the quiz on my website before or after so you can see how much you learned and comment what your two scores are. Let's start by traveling all the way back in time to 1787 at the Constitutional Convention. To give some background, the Constitutional Convention was a series of conventions with delegates from 12 of the 13 states, Rhode Island abstained, to revise the Articles of Confederation. These delegates are referred to as the Framers, the Founders, or what you might know them as, the Founding Fathers, but they're typically called the Framers nowadays. By the way, if you're interested in why Rhode Island abstained, it's a pretty neat Google search. As you can probably guess, the Articles of Confederation were eventually scrapped, and what was produced was the Constitution we still use now, minus the amendments which we'll get into in a later episode. After the famous preamble, the framers organized the first article of the Constitution to pertain to the legislative branch, positioning it as the first branch, and with this the structures and powers of Congress were created. Let's get into what this all means. Article 1, Section 1 reads, All legislative powers herein granted shall be vested in a Congress of the United States, which shall consist of a Senate and House of Representatives. So what, what does that mean? It's just one sentence, right? Really, the biggest thing to note with this small section is the creation of a bicameral Congress, or a Congress with two chambers, the Senate and House of Representatives. This was the result of the Great Compromise, which was the solution to one of the largest issues of debate at the convention. As was in the Articles of Confederation, Congress was to be unicameral, or with one chamber. But essentially, large states wanted more representation in Congress, with the amount of votes a state had in Congress being based off of their population, since they said they contributed more to the country financially, they contributed more resources, and they represented more of the country. Small states, on the other hand, wanted equal representation, with each state only getting one vote. These are summed up in the Virginia Plan, or Large State Plan, and the New Jersey Plan, or as you guessed it, the Small State Plan. This debate was so serious that many believe that it could have ended all of the work the framers put in at the convention. But saving the day, the Connecticut delegation came in with their creatively named Connecticut plan, proposing two chambers, one with equal representation and one with proportional representation. And so the plan, now referred to as the Great Compromise, created the bicameral Congress we still use today. Now we're going to rapid fire some general overview facts about the House of Representatives. If you want a more in-detail explanation of these, but with language that's probably a little more confusing than I'm going to use, I would point you to Article 1, Section 2 of the Constitution. Starting off, there are 435 representatives that vote. Members of the House serve a two-year term in Congress, and to be elected, there's three conditions they have to meet. One, they have to be at least 25 years old. Two, they have had to be a U.S. citizen for at least seven years. And three, they have to live in the state they're hoping to represent. 
Representatives only represent their districts, which is proportioned to be equal to all other congressional districts, about 700,000 people per congressional district. Obviously, there's some variance here since some cities have way larger populations than entire states, but the Census Bureau does the best they can do. And we could also use this time to talk about gerrymandering, but that's an issue that deserves its own episode. The leadership of the House of Representatives is called the Speaker of the House, who is elected with each new Congress, so every two years, by the majority party. So if Democrats are the majority, they elect the Speaker and vice versa for Republicans. The leader of the minority party is simply called the minority leader. The role for the Speaker of the House comes with a lot of responsibilities. They're the leader of their party, they have administrative duties that they have to do, and more. Some speakers have focused a lot on pushing their party's agendas, while others have stuck more to the administrative role. Moving on to the Senate, again, if you want more detail, check out Article 1, Section 3 of the Constitution. As we know from earlier, there's equal representation in the Senate, so two from every state, and with some quick math, you get 100 members who all serve six-year terms rather than the two-year terms in the House of Representatives. There are similar conditions with a few differences from the House to be elected to the Senate. First, you've got to be 30 years old. Second, you have to be a U.S. citizen for nine years. And three, you have to live in the state you hope to represent. The Senate is interesting since the president of the Senate is actually the vice president. So when you watch the State of the Union and see the vice president and the speaker of the House behind the president, this is the leadership of both chambers being represented. But the vice president is usually not too involved with what's going on in the Senate, and they're only allowed to vote on a bill to break a tie. During joint sessions, or when both chambers meet together, the two leaders also sit together and preside over the session. There is also the president pro tempore, elected by the majority party, and is usually the member with the longest record of continuous service in the Senate. They really just take over duties like administering oaths or presiding over joint sessions if the vice president's unable to. Okay, so now we know how many members are in each chamber, what they need to be to get elected, and also their leadership. But we also know that the main goal of Congress is to pass legislation, which is why it's named the legislative branch. But we're going to dive a little deeper first into the structure and also take a few turns before we get back to this. With each new Congress, members are assigned to committees by their respective party, by the Committee on Committees or Steering Committee. Committees are formally established and consider legislation, conduct hearings, and do other assigned duties. There's three types of committees. First is a standing committee, which is specialized on topics to report legislation like the Committee on the Budget, the Committee on Foreign Relations, or the Committee on the Judiciary, and these are all within their chamber. There's also joint committees, which have members from both chambers on them. They usually narrow jurisdiction or work on joint issues. One is the Joint Committee on the Library, which deals with affairs of the Library of Congress. And finally, there's special or select committees, which are created for a specific purpose to investigate or perform a study, and they're only around for a limited time. One is the Select Committee on Aging. Each committee has its own rules, and we could get into that, but it's not really important to what we're talking about, and really it's just getting down into the nitty-gritty. But within committees, there's also subcommittees, which, according to the Senate website, most subcommittees are created to hold hearings, mark up legislation, and report measures to their full committees for further action. Subcommittees work within guidelines established by their parent committee, so the number and autonomy of subcommittees varies. 
These are even more specialized from committees and members are assigned from within each committee. Some examples are the Senate Subcommittee on Intellectual Property, which is within the Senate Committee of the Judiciary, and the House Subcommittee on Forestry, which is within the House Committee on Agriculture. And to make this even more confusing, there's also caucuses. These are informal groups devoted around a specific topic or issue to research and plan policy. They are sometimes called coalitions, task force, or study groups also. There are so many caucuses ranging from all different topics, like the Congressional Shipbuilding Caucus, Congressional Friends of New Zealand Caucus, and the Congressional Invasive Species Caucus. So now that we've done a long explanation of basically the different clubs of Congress, let's move on to what Congress actually does. So far, I've mentioned the term hearing a few times, but what does that mean? Basically, they're used to gather information for Congress, and there's four broad categories. The first is legislative hearings, which focus around different bills to get more information on them or prepare them to be reported, which is one of the steps for a bill to become a law. The second is oversight hearings, which typically have to do with oversight of the executive branch. This can mean looking at programs or agencies if they believe they're being poorly executed or administered, or it can be to reauthorize a program if that committee's jurisdiction over it is expiring soon. Next, there are investigative hearings, which look into wrongdoings by government officials, like impeachment, which we'll get into in a bit, or by private individuals or entities for issues like business practices or civil liberties. And finally, there's confirmation hearings, which is a duty of the Senate, detailed in Article 2, Section 2 of the Constitution, which gives them the power of advice and consent. These confirm presidential nominations and positions like the Cabinet or the Supreme Court. If you're interested, you can watch some hearings on congress.gov or committee websites. Sometimes they're really interesting and you might see clips of them on the news. Other times they're a little drier and just pretty routine. So since I mentioned it a little earlier, let's get into impeachment, which is a word I think we're all pretty familiar with at this point, but there are a lot of misconceptions about what exactly it is. From the Senate website, through the impeachment process, Congress charges and then tries an official of the federal government for treason, bribery, or other high crimes and misdemeanors. There's not an exact definition in the Constitution about what other high crimes and misdemeanors are, and this lack of a formal definition has caused a lot of debate. But now let's look at how impeachment works. As we know, to be impeached, it must be alleged that a federal official committed a high crime or misdemeanor. Impeachment is split up between the two chambers. The House has the power of impeachment and the Senate presides over the impeachment trials. To find an explanation of these in more confusing language, look to Article 1, Section 2 and 3. So it starts with the House. And this is a little bit of an opinion, but usually if the president is the same party as the majority in the House, they probably won't bring up articles of impeachment because like politics. But anyways, the House has the power of impeachment. What does this mean? They produce the Articles of Impeachment, which is essentially an indictment from the House Committee on the Judiciary. These articles detail the charges that an official is charged with. And for a reminder, it's not just the president that can be impeached. Vice presidents can, judges can, it's really any officer in government. The House Judiciary Committee then sends the Articles of Impeachment to the entire House of Representatives, where they debate and discuss them and then vote. Only a simple majority is needed to pass them, so 50% of the House. There's a possibility that the Articles won't pass the House, and if they don't, then that's the end of it. But if they do, they then move on to the Senate, where a trial's held, 
that we explained is presided over by the Senate. They hear evidence, it witnesses, and then decide on a verdict with a supermajority or two-thirds. So that would be 67 senators. So impeachment is something that makes Congress very powerful, and it's part of checks and balances. Not only do they have this power over the president, but they also have it over Supreme Court judges, making it equal with all three branches. But it's not something that's used very often, and due to the series of the matter, only three presidents have been impeached. But there are other powers that make Congress powerful, namely the power of the purse. This is seen as the biggest separation of power Congress has over the executive branch because we all know that the people who hold the money are really the ones who hold the power. Basically, Congress has the power over the, all the money being spent by the United States government, so every year they approve the budget, which appropriates all of the money of the government to different bodies. So, if you have a complaint about how the government is spending your money, make sure you call your senators and representative and let them know how you feel. This also gives them the power of taxation, and going back to committees, this is done by the House Ways and Means Committee, which was created to collect taxes to finance the federal government. There are a variety of taxes levied by the Ways and Means Committee. According to their website, this includes individual and corporate income taxes, excise taxes, estate taxes, gift taxes, and other miscellaneous taxes. Congress, more specifically the Senate, also has the ability to ratify treaties, sort of. The executive branch negotiates treaties between the U.S. and other countries. Then the Senate Committee on Foreign Relations looks over the treaty, and if they agree to move on with it, they report it to the Senate floor for a vote. Then if the treaty earns a supermajority, as we know, 67 senators voting in favor, the Senate essentially gives permission to the president to enter the treaty. This process is called the resolution of ratification, and is, this power is given to the Senate through the earlier discussed power of advice and consent clause. Now, let's get into what Congress is most known for, passing legislation. Okay, this is a lot, so we're gonna break this down. This whole process starts with a member of Congress of either chamber sponsoring a bill, and it can be sponsored by several members or just one. Bills will also have co-sponsors who are supporters of the bill, and a member can be added before or after the bill is introduced. So once the sponsor of a bill or sponsors are finished writing the bill, they introduce it to a standing committee, which is within the sponsor's chamber. Then, the bill is assigned to a group within the committee who review and research it and make changes through a series of hearings. Once this is done, the bill may be reported from its originating committee to the floor of the House or Senate. Then members debate on a bill, make amendments to it, which are voted on, and then finally vote on the final bill. If it passes, the bill is then passed to the next chamber, and a similar process takes place where they study the bill, vote to pass it onto the floor, and then debate and make their own amendments. One feature of the Senate that is not granted to the House is the filibuster. This is called talking out the bill. If senators wish to delay or stop voting on a bill or amendment, they will give long speeches, sometimes even just reading the phone book, to prolong their speech. However, a nomination cannot be filibustered. There is also an option for a silent filibuster in which senators promise to filibuster in order to stop a vote. There used to be no way to end a filibuster until 1917 when a procedure was introduced called cloture, which allowed for two-thirds of the Senate, or 67 members, to vote to end a filibuster and pass a bill. Later, this was changed to three-fifths, so 16 members needed. 
For nominations, only a simple majority or 51 members are needed for cloture. Nowadays, almost all bills that go through the Senate need 60 votes rather than the 51 that are the technical requirement to pass, since the minority party will just use a silent filibuster. And this has caused a lot of gridlock in the Senate and made it very difficult for any legislation to be passed. So if you hear news that a bill is having a really hard time going through the Senate, this is why. There is debate about abolishing the filibuster. Politicians on both sides of the aisle, or from both parties, have spoken out in support of this. Supportive arguments say that it would increase efficiency, especially with controversial issues like health care or immigration, and those against it say that it would make the Senate not focused on finding a consensus among its members, since only the majority party would be needed to pass a vote, and it would take away rights for the minority party. So why can the Senate filibuster, but the House can't? Since the House is so much larger than the Senate, remember there's 100 senators and there is 435 representatives, rules were adopted to limit the amount of time each member could speak and debate. While in the Senate, thanks to Vice President Aaron Burr, who you may know as the guy who shot Alexander Hamilton, officially decided that there would be no limit on debate. Okay, so that was a bit of a tangent, but let's review what we know about how bills are passed. First, it originates in committee and then is reported to the floor after a vote. Next, it is debated, amended, and voted on, and if passed, goes to the next chamber. That last process repeats, so more debates, more amendments, and a vote. If the bill passes in both chambers, the two must work together to agree on a final bill to vote on. This means looking at the changes that both chambers made and agreeing on a final version. So basically, more debating, more amending, and you guessed it, more voting. Once there is an agreed upon final bill, both chambers vote again. And if this final copy passes both chambers, then it goes to the desk of the president, who has four choices to make. First, within 10 days of the bill being passed to them, excluding Sunday, they can sign it into law, and that's it for that option, it's now a law. The second is they can just leave the bill alone, and after 10 days, if Congress is in session, the bill becomes law, regardless of if they signed it or not. This can be useful if a president doesn't want to alienate a part of their support base, but they still want a bill to be passed into law. The third is a regular veto, which is the president saying no to a bill, they won't sign it into law. If this happens, the bill is sent back to Congress, which does have a tool to override a presidential veto. If both chambers can get a supermajority or two-thirds of their members to override a veto, that bill will become law. And the fourth option is called the pocket veto. This is if, within 10 days of a bill reaching the president's desk, Congress adjourns. Then the bill is dead and there's no way to override this decision. So if Congress wants to try again with that bill, they have to start the process from the very beginning. So we've gone over a lot, from how Congress was created, why we have the two chambers, what committees are, how bills are passed, what impeachment is, and more. While this may have seemed like a lot, we've really only scratched the surface. But having this general understanding will be really helpful in future episodes as we go deeper into what Congress and other branches of government do. And here's some bonus information. If you ever want to let your representative or senators know your opinion on issues, contact them. You can find their phone numbers on their website, or you can usually find their email or submission form. If you're having an issue with a federal agency, like the VA or the IRS, you can also contact them, which again is on their websites, typically under the services tab. 
Also under that same tab, you can request a tour of the Capitol building. If you're visiting DC, you can request a flag. There's really a lot of information that a lot of people don't know about. And if you're unsure of who your representative is, go to house.gov slash representatives slash find dash your dash representative. And if you're a college student and you're interested in an internship at the House of Representatives or in the Senate, you can find that information under services too. I interned at the Senate and it was a really great experience and you really get to meet a lot of great people and also do a lot of great work. If you have any questions on that, feel free to write in and let me know. Thanks for listening to the first episode of Who Wants Some Pork? Come back next Tuesday for another episode and make sure to retake the quiz on my blog and comment your before and after scores. If you have any ideas for future episodes or any questions you want answered, comment on the blog post entitled Requested Episodes.